Hello, I'm Gordon Lanfear with The Real Finds Podcast, the podcast series where we speak with key entrepreneurs, scientists, and activists who are shaping the real estate industry and, as a result, our world. In the episode today, we'll be talking with Rudy Kirtler and Mike Sampson from Sawgrass Capital Partners. On the podcast, we'll discuss effective syndications, the keys to successful property management, and the biggest challenges of generating wealth in the manufactured home space. Hey, everyone. Uh, thanks for hopping on the podcast today, Rudy and Mike. Uh, they both have a unique perspective, both on deal syndication, affordable housing, and also an overall look at what's happening in the commercial real estate industry. Rudy and Mike, thanks for hopping on the podcast today. Great to see you, Gordon. Yeah, it's our pleasure. So first of all, I wanted to start off. Could you guys give a brief introduction, a little bit about your background uh, for the listeners? Sure. I'll, uh, I'll start and then uh, kick it over to Mike. So my background, I, I spent um, 30 years, plus 30 years in retail and, uh, and also in uh, high-touch service industry. So the background was when I came out of college, I started working for Walmart. I spent about four years working for them and worked my way up into leadership. And then I actually pivoted and moved back to the Twin Cities to start working for Best Buy Corporation. And I spent uh, 22 years there where I actually met Mike and he and I formed a good friendship. And uh, about the last four years, I spent working in the hair salon industry, which is unlike uh, most other industries. But uh, I did, uh, you know, I was um, in executive leadership in the uh, hair salon industry. And I have been doing a side hustle in real estate since about 2007. And Mike and I partnered up in 2019. And I think that's uh, where the meat of what we want to chat about today is is centered. So Mike. Yeah. Uh, similar story to Rudy, uh, started in retail with Best Buy, uh, good, bad, or indifferent. Rudy actually trained me. So, uh, if you like what you hear today, it's because of Rudy. And if you don't, it's because of Rudy too. Uh, and then, you know, spent 20 years, uh, in retail. Most of it was with Best Buy. I spent a couple of years with a T-Mobile dealer, and then I jumped into the franchise industry for about the last six years. I've been working with investors really all over the U.S. Uh, to try to help them uh, narrow down what kind of franchise would be a great investment for them. And then, uh, as Rudy mentioned, uh, back in 2019, uh, I'll never forget the space. We were walking around the dog park and he started pitching this idea of coming together as a, as a real estate investor. On a side note, when he first started, uh, he asked me to come with him, and I didn't have the vision to say, yeah, let's roll. And I've been watching him create this real estate uh, kind of dynasty. And uh, at the dog park, he didn't even get the sentence out. And I jumped and said, yes, I'm in. Whatever you're doing, let's do it. And uh, we've been uh, uh, working on this side hustle since 2019. So there's a lot of our listeners that are out there that probably have similar enthusiasm, but they're afraid of how to start. So how did you guys start uh, starting that side hustle, taking that, that leap of faith into the real estate industry? I, the, for us, the, you know, we had experience, um, you know, as mentioned from 2007 up to about 2019. So we had 10 or 12 years of experience kind of um, learning what was working, what wasn't working. We knew the market well that uh, we had seen an opportunity. There was a mobile home park. It was a fairly rundown mobile home park in the town that we had had a lot of other rentals in. So we knew the market, we understood it. We had a network there. 
Um, and so what we didn't know, what we had no clue on was how to syndicate something. We had no knowledge of, gosh, really, where do you start? What do you do? Who do you pull in to, you know, to help um, actually do just some legal paperwork? And then we didn't understand, you know, what, um, you know, we thought we had a, a fair, fairly okay vision of how do we start approaching investors and who to approach. And we started creating a list and those kinds of kinds of things. But um, that was the bigger leap. You know, the market we understood, we, we knew how to rent stuff out. We knew what the demand was. And so all that was good. Um, and we had some a little bit of experience running some smaller mobile home parks. Um, and so I think that, you know, experience is, is a good teacher. And if nothing else for your listeners, you know, try to find a, you know, try to find somebody that, out there that's got uh, some operational experience. Maybe they're, maybe they're running out of capital and you come in as a capital partner or vice versa. Maybe you have something operational you can bring to the deal and they just need some help. You know, they may need to get their team and their time freed up. You know, maybe you're a marketing expert. Maybe you're a, you know, you're a financial with, maybe you're great at Excel spreadsheets or social media. You know, those are ways that you can get in to help somebody, you know, shoot, we could use somebody that's great at social media, right? That helps us. Mike and I, that's not our, our forte, but we can get way better at it. Those kinds of things. So uh, I'd like to uh, go back to that. So there's a lot of folks out there that have a skill, right? That are that social media maven or that are that um, uh, individual that understands uh, construction. How do you reach out and find a knowledgeable uh, developer or a knowledgeable syndicator? Because I think there, I think that's one of the biggest gaps that at least I see from my perspective. I got a, maybe a, a different perspective. Um, the, the first thing I would suggest is start with your network. You'd be shocked how many people in your network are doing real estate. So as an example, my mentor is Rudy, right? Like he had a, he had a little bit more knowledge than I did. And, uh, and we were able to leverage that. And then once you start Leveraging your network, and, and I'm th saying things as simple as just go through your LinkedIn profile of all the people you're connected with. Me and Rudy literally went A through Z, and you know I have over 2,000 connections. I think he has over 2,000 connections, and, and all of a sudden we had a list of not only potential investors that we we eventually did deals with, but you start creating a list of people who have skills that you need to leverage whether it be accounting, tax advisors, marketing, you know, you know, financial advisors, whatever it is. So that, that is where I think our biggest um, lesson was learned is it's not necessarily, you know, Googling who is the biggest professional you can get your hands on or, you know, go into bigger pockets as an example and look for the biggest names that you can find. All of those things we've, we've done and we've learned stuff from them, but the fastest traction we've gotten, in my opinion, is going to our own network. And and you would just be stunned how many people have a side hustle. And then you start talking to them. They already know you. They already like you. They already trust you. And, and they'll be pretty excited to either do a deal with you or, or mentor you as you learn how to do it. That's a great, yeah, that's a great point, Mike. Uh, I think people would be surprised how often there's a wealth of resources right around them. Um, so on that note, you've gotten your wealth of resources from somebody or, or there's somebody you've reached out to and you have some experience, uh, either Rudy or Mike, do you want to touch on what propels you towards an asset class? Because I think 
one of the big points that you have where people freeze up when they're looking to potentially either reach out and put their money into somebody else's deal or to put together a deal on their own. How, how do you decide what a good asset class looks like? I'll, I'll take a stab at it, Gordon. I think the for us, it, we, um, we have been looking for small multifamilies for a number of years. We've been already dipped our toes into the single family residential. Um, we found enough deals. We saw the market continue to rise. And so it, it became harder for us to, um, in, in a lot of cases, make the math work. And there's a lot of competition, by the way, in single family residentials. There's a lot of competition in small yeah. multifamilies and in multifamily in general. And on accident, in a way, we stumbled on mobile home parks. Um, our realtor in the town that we were investing in happened to own a few mobile home parks, among other things, in his portfolio. And he was getting up there in age. You know, I think the specific quote that he said that made me jump at the opportunity that I saw, and he was one of these kind of guys that he wouldn't oversell anything. In fact, he'd almost have to push him to try to sell you something. Yeah, he, was, <laughs> he was, you know, very much, you know, do it if you think you like it kind of deal. But what he said to me and my and my other partner at the times, he said, if I wasn't 65 years old, I'd be jumping all over this mobile home park. And what he was saying was he was just tired from, you know, some of the other stuff that he was doing. He didn't have a lot of energy, but he, and so I thought, well, shoot, okay, if it's that impressive to him and the numbers that I looked at looked really good, I felt like I could see the vision of, of this park, you know, turning around and, uh, doing some of the things that we wanted. And again, we were struggling to get into some of that multifamily space without overpaying for it. Um, and so we jumped at that opportunity. That was our first mobile home park. And then once we understood the mobile home park space and understood at least our philosophy is we don't want to own the homes in the park as, as often as possible. We, we want to sell those homes to the resident when they show that they have the wherewithal to pay for them and keep them up. Uh, that's the win. And so then we just become land broker. You know, we're the landowner, uh, you know, truly landlord, right? And we, we rent the dirt to them and we're responsible for anything essentially at dirt level underneath. So it's utilities and the common areas. And they're responsible for their roofs, windows, doors, toilets, carpet, all that stuff. Where in a multifamily, that's one of the most common things I hear from multifamily owners and investors is they never really fully understood what that means in each unit in a multifamily, they own all of that stuff. Like somebody screws up their, their you know, <laughs> painting a wall, they're responsible. They wreck the sheetrock, they wreck the toilet, they, whatever. They, the owner is responsible to some large degree. And so you don't have that in, in, uh, in mobile home park investing um, the way we do it. And so, you know, there's tremendous upside and supply demand curve is absolutely in the favor of affordable housing for a, I predict uh, the the uh, the future that I have left on this planet. Affordable housing is going to be a demand, and and so we still are going to have to figure out that dilemma of affordable housing. And mobile home parks are the closest thing you have to, you know, it, it's the bridge between. Um, well, I won't say it that way, but it, it affordable housing demand is significant. So you touched on um, the whole idea of not owning the actual units themselves and owning the land. And I think that's a huge gap that a lot of people don't understand about when they do become a landlord. Look, we're commercial landlords. We really don't have a significant multifamily portfolio. Um, but what I would say is I don't think people realize how hard it is to be a landlord. 
on a daily basis. And what that means, it means that some, you know, frat bro has a party at, you know, uh, at his place on Saturday night and clogs the toilets. And you've got to send a guy out there at two in the morning uh, on Sunday. Um, on that note and kind of understanding how different uh, manufactured homes are, uh, can you guys touch on um, what kind of, you know, it's not like you're buying uh, necessarily individual assets, right? In terms of individual homes, but you're buying a, a parcel. Can, can you tell, tell us a little bit about how you select that parcel uh, in terms of location, uh, price, and kind of what makes a good uh, manufactured home development for you guys? Sure. I see my partner. Like. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> um, yeah. So we, we have kind of a, a saying uh, around let, let the math lead us the right direction or, or let's deal in facts, right? So you don't want to get emotional. <laughs> around it especially when you're dealing with a syndication our our goal is to get a return for the investor so what we're looking for is first of all a property where there's demand okay so you know we want to be in a town maybe of about twenty thousand or or higher um, but we stay out of the major metropolitan areas like we don't have anything as an example in minneapolis st paul And, and why it's because oftentimes you know you're big uh, real estate investors come in and it gets very competitive uh, to start bidding on property here, let alone just the, the price per pad. So, you know, when you get into a town like Brookings, South Dakota, as an example, um, there's there's probably within 30, 40 miles of that city, all kinds of different small communities that can feed into it that people come and you know work inside there. So we'll look for uh, first the area, right? Uh, the kind of population we want to deal with so that we're not uh, outbidding or, or bidding against big investors. And then what we want is the upside. So we'll look for probably the, the park in the roughest shape with the least amount of infill with the most upside. Um, so we can come in and, and let's say, for example, it's a hundred pads park, uh, but it only has 20 homes sitting there. That, that's right in our wheelhouse. Um, and maybe there's a busted water line or something in it. And, you know, it, it's just a tough park. Well, oftentimes that park will have a tough time getting, um, a loan on it. So other investors, if they don't have the cash or a syndication behind them, there's not enough cash flow for the bank to give anybody a note on it. So again, those type of parks kind of keep the, the competition down, uh, so you can get a good price on it. And then what, what we'll do is come in and within about six months, 18 months, 12 months, somewhere in that range, um, fix all the problems and start infilling, right? And, and bring five, 10, 15 homes in at a crack. And and our goal is within three, maybe five years tops, we've got that park in a position where it's full, it's stable, the, the rent's at at least market rate, right? Average. And uh, it's a really attractive asset for somebody to come in and buy, and then we can get our return for our investors. So, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. But what we're looking for is a, a community of around 20,000, you know, maybe to 100,000, somewhere in that range. You know, there's some industry around it that's feeding the workforce. Um, you know, affordable housing is is in demand. We'll go and we'll look at the median uh, home sale rate as well. Right to make sure uh, that that's going to help us as we're looking to sell mobile homes. 
uh, and then come in and, and fix it up and, and sell it. Rudy, did I miss anything, buddy? <laughs> what the, no, you did a nice job. The, the, our little catchphrase internally is, you know, we look for the good uncontrollables and the bad controllables. And so meaning like we want to find a city that's got a good job market. It's got a good, you know, it's, maybe it's got a university there. It's, it's all the things Mike just said, but then the bad uh, controllables, you know, bad management, they were undercapitalized, you know, they lost some houses, whatever it is, because we can fix all that. We can address that. I can't address uh, as a property owner. <clears throat> I can't address the job market very well in that city, right? I can't address the, you know, is there, you know, a good university is a good demand. You know, I could try, but that's really hard. That's a big mountain for me to climb. And so we're looking, you know, to make it as simple as we can. And, and so that's, that's how we think about it. And, and Gordon, so, I'll give you an example. I'd, I'd like to talk quick. I'll give go you this ahead. really no, good again, example. Go um, so out in Williston, North Dakota, uh, there's a big oil boom there was, right? And, and uh, affordable housing was in a huge demand. So there's all kinds of mobile home parks going up around there and, you know, what they call man camps and just any place they can get to live to serve that industry, right? Well, we stayed away from it. We stayed away from it because the whole market is driven by one industry. And if that one industry goes down, all of a sudden, all those workers pick up and take off to wherever the next boom is. And now you got a half-filled park or potentially an empty park. So it's not saying that that's a bad investment out there. What it's saying is it doesn't fit what we look for. Uh, and that's multiple industries feeding a community. So we can be sure and kind of de-risk it and make sure there's good uh, uh, demand for housing. Look, I, I can't agree with you guys enough, I think. When people make emotional decisions in the real estate game, that's when they get burned. So, um, you know, definitely the right way to look at it. Um, on that note, I, I know you touched on earlier, Rudy, you touched on uh, bringing in management or improving management systems that operate in that park. I think we both are all three of us can agree um, that management is the bedrock often of a successful uh, real estate asset almost regardless of industry. Um, in terms of hiring and training and developing management uh, protocols and teams, how do you guys go about that? Because that's probably, I think, the biggest gap I see between folks that are starting out in the industry and are kind of struggling and, and people who really understand their asset class. Sure. We, we, um, <clears throat> you're, you're spot on, Gordon. The, uh, the people leading the property management are absolutely critical. And, and we run across a lot of uh, investors that say, hey, listen, I've never found a, a park manager or a property manager that I like. I do it all myself. Right? There's some <laughs> of those kinds of people. And <clears throat> that's not necessarily us because this has been, you know, it's been a side hustle for us. And, and we're now, you know, with the intent that it will become full time, you know, as we get to scale. But what we've looked for and we've been fortunate that we inherited uh, a couple of really good park managers. Uh, who had underdeveloped skills. And so what we did, and I give Mike a ton of credit, um, we've, we've got one of our park managers who's essentially become a now a district manager for us, where she manages six or seven of our mobile home parks. She's a she's incredibly humble. She's eager to learn. She just didn't, you know, she didn't know what she didn't know. And so we were able to apply our operational background and Mike specifically his operational background in leading people and managing people, developing her to get her to focus on the outcomes that we're after. The outcome that we're after is 
you get a resident in place, right? You get a resident that pays the rent on time. And if they don't do that, they understand the accountability and the consequences of those decisions. And granted, we're going to work with people. You know, we, we understand that life happens and we adopt a model and a, and a mentality of firm but fair. And, you know, rent collection is, is what it is. But if, if people have learned that they can, they can abuse the system and pay rent late every month, uh, there are no consequences, uh, you know, people will, will gravitate toward the path of least resistance. It's human nature, right? It's a survival technique of, you know, from, from eons. But anyway, you know, the point is she um, specifically has figured out through Mike's leadership, you know, how to manage people. She does an incredible job, you know, collecting, <clears throat> collecting rent, keeping issues at a minimum. You know, communicating with us, and part a big part of that is is Mike's consistent rhythm with with her, and in a couple other cases, we have other park managers who we're working with, uh, who help us. You know, by minimizing some of the distractions that we need to deal with, and they may not be perfect managers, like they don't do everything perfectly, but that's okay, right? The upside is way better. You know, way more important than the downside of what they don't know, uh, and we'll work with them and develop them along the way. Um, <clears throat> Mike, what did I miss? Well, you hit a lot. I'll share a couple of things. First of all, um, you know, Reed and I have been leading people for 15 years, 20 years. We use the exact same leadership skill set we did when we were working with store managers or, you know, department supervisors. And the thing I'll stress is get a really good business rhythm. So if, if your park manager knows Tuesday at 10 a.m., you're coming on a zoom line or, or, you know, however you want to do it. And, and he or she knows the first thing you're going to do is go over delinquent tenants and that's their responsibility. They don't want to come on that call with a big list of delinquent tenants. So without me even saying anything, just putting it on the zoom <laughs> is, is yeah. enough, right? So if they can't handle delinquent tenants, I don't need them as a park manager. It's that's cut and dry. I, and we don't approach it that cold. But over time, that's their job is to make sure we're getting paid and work with me and Rudy if we have to help out. Um, okay, so after you go to delinquent tenants, we go to vacancies. Put the vacancy rate up on the screen. And for homes that we have sitting there, that's their job, right? So again, nobody wants to come on that Zoom and, and see empty units sitting there. Um, you know, And then we go into accounts uh, payable, right? So... You know, if there's some any kind of repairs or anything like that, um, again, they don't want to see a, a, an account like a bill we have due. They didn't get approved. And that's the big thing when you're having a remote person managing your park is you got to uh, eliminate the surprises in that, you know, $5,000 bill showing up that was for a water heater or, you know, something crazy. Well, if you have that rhythm and they know that, they're going to make sure they get all those things approved. So. Just by having that rhythm and being crystal clear on what you're going to talk about, you'll be able to see, and then you'll have all kinds of conversations, either recognition or coaching or accountability based on the outcome of, of what you're having on those calls. And, and by the way, if you buy a mobile home park um, the way we do, and we do a lot of fix up and, and uh, fix a lot of infrastructure, you know, we're looking for those beat up, you know, or, or, or kind of run down parts. We did the same thing with the, the work. So if she was working with somebody to fix a water line or if trees needed to be removed or whatever, it was the same kind of business rhythm. Okay, what's the problem? Who's coming in? What's the cost? When's it going to be done by? Send us pictures. 
and then you just move on. So the tighter your business rhythm, the better it is. And the last learning, Gordon, that it's really big for this topic. Um, at one point in time, we spread out our purchases. So we had purchases in different states, and you lose the economy of scale around your park manager. And then all of a sudden, we realized that, and we said, look, we need to center around Brookings, and we're expanding out around South Dakota. So now that one park manager can act as a, a district manager and, you know, go manage some of the park managers that are in place for us. And it really takes the burden off of Rudy and I. So that's the other thing I'd give you is, is grow in scale so that you can maximize your manpower. And when you do find that good park manager, you can grow around them. Yeah, I, I look, 100% agreement about growing in scale. Our business model for the last 140 years has been to be kings of the north half of the color counties. Um, uh, before, well, I shouldn't say that's necessarily true, but we were originally kings of the south color counties, and then we've moved. But as our assets moved, our scale moved together in coordination. And if you're operating in a world where you don't have full scalability, you're just losing out. Um, so total agreement on that. Um, the one thing I'd like to, to kind of touch back on is I know you guys discussed syndication earlier and, um, you really become syndication experts from what I hear. Um, how, how do you guys, um, reach out and find capital? So it can be, uh, through syndication, I'm guessing, but it could also be through financing long or short term. And how is that, uh, or how are your methods? Uh, going forward, particularly in this tight, you know, high interest rate environment. Sure, and it, yeah, um, great question. And, I, and it also does always go back to the math, right? And so, even in a high interest rate environment, you can find deals, but it becomes even more prudent and important that your math works. And so, you've got to see the ROI. You've got to see a you know reasonable return on that investment. And and um, you know, from a syndication standpoint. What we did is very similar to kind of what we were sharing earlier is we just went through LinkedIn, you know, we started there and said, hey, who do we know? Who do we know, like, and trust? And who do we want to partner with that could be in this space with us? You know, we just started making some phone calls. We created our pitch deck. We worked with our attorney to make sure we had our, our you know, eyes dotted and T's crossed, you know, buttoned up our, our language. And then what we also learned is um, there are all kinds of ways that you can structure deals. There's all kinds of ways that you can structure it. What matters is, do the investors believe in the outcome? Do they, do they understand and see the direction that you're taking the syndication? Um, and so what, what I mean by that is, for the listeners, is you'll see a lot of syndicated deals where they will offer a preferred return of some rate. Um, or they may offer a split in the cash flow. Or they offer some level of deferred you know, payout or whatever it might be. It just depends on the investment. Well... Well, Mike and I learned, you know, we didn't know going in early was that you don't have to structure something with a preferred return. You don't have to have that burden where you've got to hit a nut every quarter, right? Um, you can structure something as a function of cash flow every quarter. You can function, you know, structure something that's got a deferred mix. We can be flexible in terms of what that mix looks like. Depends on the size of the deal. Uh, and so, at least in our example, you know, by going out to our, you know, our network and, and talking to folks, and then we start asking the question is, is there anybody else that you know? And it depends on how we structure, right? So there's a difference whether we can advertise or not advertise. And, and 
if you're in, if your listeners don't know that, make sure that they're talking to a qualified securities attorney <laughs> and uh, know the difference, right? So, um, but so depending on which syndication we're talking about, we knew that we could either advertise or not advertise. And if we couldn't advertise, then it came down to who did we know and, and had an existing relationship with. Um, and and then, but if we could advertise, then we started talking to folks and said, hey, you know who. You know, who out there do you know that's interested in, in a passive investment that would, would want to work with people like us that have an interest in, you know, to some degrees on a small scale, solving some of the affordable housing uh, crisis that we have. And, and that became a really interesting um, niche for us. And when we use that language, too, I think it really kind of hits, hits for people because that's what we're doing. I mean, we're solving and keeping that opportunity available. Because the other part, and I don't want to get too philosophical here, Gordon, but you know, the other thing that's interesting that's happening across America is a lot more mobile home parks every year are getting plowed under than, than are getting developed or redeveloped. And so, and then the other side of that coin is there's also a bad rap from some private equity firms that are coming in and buying the parks, and it's all about the numbers and the dollars and cents on a, on a spreadsheet. And it's not about the firm, but they're you know, taking up rents at a reasonable rate. That's that's fair to people, and you know some of these developers or, or investors are are jacking up lot rent rates and forcing people out because they don't care. It's about the money. It's about the math, and that's not our strategy, right? Our strategy is firm but fair. Take it up over time, uh, you know, make it reasonable that people can live, and and you know help help uh, maintain that opportunity in America for people to live and own their property and give them a leg up. Yeah, look, uh, I I can't uh, agree with you more. I, we always try to be firm and fair. Um, I know our team. We worked with folks pretty intensely during the pandemic, um, deferring rent and trying to create very functional uh, payment plan structures to allow some of our small businesses to stay um, in business. What a lot of other larger firms didn't, and um, uh, I. You know, hats off to you guys because um, sometimes uh, there's very little morality behind uh, landlords, and uh, as a result, all the rest of us get a bad rap. So um, yeah, we, we uh, have to sleep at night, right? I, I'd like to kind of <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we we all have to sleep sleep at night, and uh, uh, some of us uh, can't be uh, Scrooge. We have to uh, we have to get by on uh, our brains, not on our our coldness. Um, so on a on a note that's kind of similar, I, I'd like to uh, tag back to um, when you guys talked about kind of your model and the passive income model. So I think the one of the biggest gaps I see between different investment groups is some have kind of a short term exit strategy and some have kind of a longer term passive income strategy. Um, what is it that you guys really focus on, or do you kind of take a little bit of both? Yeah, we've got a little bit of both. Um, it was actually a, a suggestion I was going to give, and I'm glad you came back to it. You know, because when you're looking to structure your deal, you, you got to understand what's your goal, and that's going to attract a different investor. Um, so most of our uh, investments, we set up with the syndication to give us the flexibility to hold between five and seven years. Um, and, and we have a refi goal. So we call it a liquidating event. W within 18 months of buying the asset, maybe 24 months, it, it's a personal goal between Rudy and I. We want to either have it in position to refi it and get the investors 
you know, original capital investment out or have it in position to sell it. Right. So, so maybe it took us 90 days to get all the infrastructure fixed. We started infilling it and then we kept it for a year to create a P and L we found an investor, sell it. Great. Right. It's a liquidating event, but the goal, and I think if anybody's doing a syndication, if you put the investor at the center of everything you do, right. Every decision you make, the goal is how soon can you either get their money back in their hands or get their return? Good things are going to happen for you. <laughs> if you're taking care of your investors, good things will happen for you. So that's what our goal is, is go find the property, get a liquidating event of some kind um, within less than two years. But we always have the flexibility within five or seven, just in case we need more time on a property uh, before we sell it. And that's a different investor. Okay. We do have a, a at least one property I'm thinking off the top of my head, and, and this baby is just plug and play. Actually, we have two. We call them steady eddies. Um, no infill needed, no infrastructure issues. Really, the market rent was way below average, so we bought it, and uh, it's just a little cash cow, right? Um, we don't necessarily have a, a, a big liquidating event coming anytime soon, but it's super dependable. It's de-risked, and these investors just love getting their mailbox money, you know, as often as they possibly can. And, and then we'll probably marry that with with a when we sell the whole portfolio, just marry that in, and, and you know, whenever we sell the whole thing, potentially move it with it. But that's a different investor. So you really got to get clear on what your goal is, what your outcome is, and then your, your folks that are less uh, want less risk, they'll want to go that steady eddy. Uh, the folks that are looking for that upside um, will go more on your, maybe your fix and flips as an example. Now, Rudy, any other thoughts on that? No, you did well. So he taught I'm me kind of touching back on one last. <laughs> Touch, <laughs> Mike uh, and, and Rudy touching back on kind of what you guys talked about a little bit earlier. Um, you talked about some of the hardships that exist in the manufactured home and RV park industry, um, particularly uh, parks getting uh, removed, um, long-term uh, structural issues and political issues and economic issues that are making it hard to develop and maintain parks. And I, I wanted to see if uh, you could kind of help educate some of our listeners because I think there's a lot of folks that see RV parks and manufactured home parks and understand um, that there is a there is a little bit of controversy out there. And I wanted um, to kind of better educate them on why it's so hard to build them, even in particularly in places where they may very well be needed. Yeah, what we've seen, and, and this is just going to be a you know microcosm, probably just our view is a microcosm of what really you know everything that's out there. But our view and what we've seen has been, you know, municipalities, cities, you know, planning and zoning commissions are, you know, cities are um, in many cases incentivized by their tax rolls, right? They need to know that there's enough tax revenue coming in for them to to sustain their expenses as a city. And so they make decisions based on those tax rules, which isn't all, you know, not all bad, right? But it, they, they've got to make some smart decisions on what they do, how they do it. And if you look at a parcel of land, so let's just use one example. We've got a uh, two properties that butt up next to each other in the city of city of Brookings, 
and those two properties make up about 15 acres of land. Well, that 15 acres of land, if it had brand new side-by-side -side townhomes or condominium buildings on it, is worth significantly more to the city than having our mobile homes sitting on it and you know the water revenue that they collect and the wastewater you know revenue that they collect and so on and so forth. So the upside for the city is significant. And if a property is run down and the owner is not showing attention to fixing the issues on that property, the city may consider that you know more of a pain than it's worth and in work to actually help exit that mobile home park so that they can sell the land and put something of higher value and higher use on it so they can collect more tax revenue. Again, it's not a horrible thing, but it, what it's doing is just a supply and demand. And so a lot of the owners that we've um, come across and, and the sellers that we've come across through our brokers and our network are, are folks that have been doing it for a long time. They either get tired of doing it or they ran out of capital and so they can get caught in a, you know, in, a, in a bad cycle where you don't have enough capital to fix this stuff. Therefore, the rents go down. And because the rents are going down, now your tax revenue is going down. So the city's getting frustrated. They want things clean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can see how it kind of snowballs. And so our approach is to come in and capitalize well up front so that we can fix the issues, bring some homes in if needed, um, create a, a clean, comfortable, safe environment for people. And therefore, the city, <clears throat> the city generally is happier because it, it's now a quality product in, the, you know, in town. And people that need that affordable place to live have a place that they can, they can be. And so it's just a, um, you know, it's I don't know how to say it differently, but it's in a way it's cyclical, right? So if you can if you find a, a seller or an owner who's kind of in that downward cycle, and you can come in and there's something you can offer to help stop that downward spiral, <clears throat> that is a win-win uh, win really. So it's a win for investors, the city, and the residents in most cases. And so that's kind of what we're looking for. Did that hit kind of your gist of your question, Gordon? Yeah, I, I think it did, uh, because I think that's just something that's important for a lot of folks to understand. Um, I, I don't think that's too different than a lot of asset classes. There's definitely right. a, a tremendous advantage to finding a, a property that's kind of on a downward slope, particularly due to a cash crunch or uh, maybe a major invest, uh, uh, you know, major tenant moves out or uh, uh uh, there's there's a kind of a, a major issue there, but as you guys said, your method's all about finding just generally good economic environments to invest in with downwardly mobile potential assets. And yep. that I think uh, there's a lot of other uh, folks that we've had on that have similar models, and uh, I think there's a reason for it, and uh, it might be uh, related to success. So. <laughs> I love it. Um, um, the, the last thing I'd like to touch on before we go to um, our final four is you guys both have retail backgrounds. Um, and I think there's something unique about uh, the retail background, particularly in how to manage people. And I was wondering if you guys could touch on how your retail background has kind of influenced the way in which you look at people management. because there's a lot of folks that think real estate is just about, you know, the brick and mortar. And um, anybody who's worked for more than a couple of years in the industry knows that that's uh, a little bit of a myth. Yeah, I see my buddy pointing at me. <laughs> um, <laughs> at, at the core of, I think, anybody's success 
it's relationship driven. And, and then being a good communicator and being crystal clear with those um, objections you want to achieve. So we don't look at it as just with our core employees that you know report to us. I, I lost count, but we probably have four or five, maybe six uh, strategic partners, you know, that work with us. And then you have vendors that are going to work with you. And I'll give you a really good example. Um, we use a, a, a portal called Syndication Pro, and that's what we run all of our communication through and, you know, our investors portal and everything like that. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I use it probably four times a year, so it's not second nature to me. So when I'm setting up my syndications. I have to call this guy and, and have him tech support me. And he was on vacation in England helping me set this thing up and gladly helping me set this thing up um, because of how we communicate with him and, and how we appreciate his partnership. And we're not a problem. Um, you know, so, and it goes back to the conversation with the city, by the way, don't be the problem child, like be the person that's bringing the solutions and go seek out the communication. So, you know, to answer your question, Everything that that we've been successful with in retail and and in, in real estate, I think really boils down to how well of a communicator you are, how well of a listener you are, what kind of business rhythm, rhythms you put around uh, the people that are supporting you. And, and then the last thing I'll give you guys, um, you've all had a boss that was emotional, and you've all had a boss that dealt in common sense. I'm not, and by the way, early in my career, I was probably pretty emotional. Right. So like if you got some of my early employees on this podcast, you know, they'd be like, what? he's the most emotional leader I've ever seen. But you learn over time and, and the, the quicker you can get the emotions of whatever situations gone and deal in common sense, then people won't be afraid to come to you. And when you're dealing with park managers or you're dealing with vendors, the quicker they can bring you the issue or the information and you guys can work through it the better off it is. So that would be my advice to everybody is, is it's really relationship driven, you know, no people want to do good, not bad, get a really good uh, business rhythm where you're communicating, whether it's a strategic partner or your employee and just center everything around common sense and, and problem solving. Uh, you have, have good chances to get, you know, a pretty good business off the ground. Gordon, did that help you? I, I don't know. Well, uh, that's what you're looking for. Yeah, no, I no, like I, I think that's that's wise words, and uh, you know, we we have uh, we have a lot of folks who are who are listeners who are kind of starting out or at early points in their careers or looking at investing, and I just as somebody who comes from a management company first, um, I think that there's a lot that people get wrong about real estate, but the biggest one in my book tends to be that. They think it's all about the brick and mortar. Um, yeah. And uh, look, the brick and mortar is important. It it really is. Like if you don't know how to how uh, how to how uh, to spec out a, a roof repair or to uh, understand an HVAC system, you know there are all sorts of things that matter in the real estate game. But people people really do matter. Um, so um, on on that um, and uh, kind of moving on to our final four. I wanted to touch on um, the first question that we always ask, which is um, you two guys are, are folks who really kind of understand the manufactured home and the affordable housing industry. 
10 years from now, what do you think is going to have changed the most about the industry? I, I think one of the things that is still needs to be solved is, you know, the, the entire conundrum of affordable housing, you know, and, and how do you stop the cycle of, you know, more mobile home parks being destroyed each year than, than I've built. Um, and so I think there's, you know, what I think is really intriguing is things like 3D printing, like 3D printed homes, you know, that becomes really intriguing. What's lagging behind that is, you know, municipal codes and housing codes that would make that actually uh, accelerate or could allow that to accelerate quicker. Um, I'm optimistic and hopeful that, uh, that, that there will be municipalities that get behind that technology because I think that, you know, you can eliminate a lot of the bottlenecks in the, in the you know, the housing um, building industry with some of the technology that's available. Uh, it can be a sustainable um, process as well, with depending on what material you use. You know, we see we've seen some homes, at least uh, I've read about homes that are built with recycled plastic for the walls that are 3D printed, so they print them in a matter of a few days. And so there's just all kinds of potential there. Unfortunately, I'm not a crystal ball guy. I'm not a huge you know <laughs> prognosticator. I wish I were better, uh, but that's kind of some of the stuff that I see. How about you, Mike? Well, I, I would echo what Rudy said. We spent a lot of our time, I guess, or, or spare time, uh, trying to understand uh, the housing side. You know, because as COVID hit and materials go up in cost, it just puts more pressure on affordable housing. And, you know, like a mobile home we used to buy at maybe 30, 40 grand brand new, suddenly became 60 or 70,000 brand new, same home, right? Just o over a couple months. So where does that pressure eventually hit? It's the person that needs the affordable home, right? Whether their rent increases because it, it costs us more to buy or, you know, it costs them more to buy uh, on the end. So, you know, we've been spending a lot of time looking at, you know, tiny homes or really trying to understand that 3D uh, model. And, and that's what I think is going to change the most uh, in our space is, is just different options uh, that maybe uh, continue to drive at the affordable home piece of it. Great. Um, so you guys have given a lot of advice about the future. Um, and um, I think sometimes understanding for most folks, um, the future is great, but sometimes even better advice is looking to the past. And so um, if you could travel back to the start of your careers, what is the advice you'd give a young Rudy or a young Mike? My, my advice to myself would have been uh, two things. One is be more selective um, in terms of my partners, my business partners, and seek somebody out that, that has a, an opposing point of view. The reason I say that is if you've got a business partner that sees all the business problems the same way you do, and you need somebody that can see the same problem but think differently about the solution, it becomes really hard if you guys are both thinking about it the same way. And so find, you know, find somebody that you can work with that you, you know, same no like, and trust uh, partner if, if that's the route you choose to go. But find somebody that's got a, an alter, you know, different point of view so you can guys can collaborate and find solutions and better solutions to problems. That's one. The second one I would offer to myself would have been figure out the syndication game sooner. Figure out the syndication game sooner. And it's because the upside potential is dramatic. And, and there are people that are looking for those opportunities to 
work with partners um, who communicate well, work with partners that understand the business side of things. Um, and, and to me, it's the, you know, the runway could be even more dynamic. And, and Mike? It's a loaded question. We, I don't know if we have enough time for all that, but uh, I'll take a swing at it. Um, <laughs> and the, there's two things that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of my kids and, and what I would, you know, try to get them thinking about. And, and the first is I've learned the difference between income and wealth. And, and I didn't know the difference. Yeah. When, when I was an early district manager at Best Buy, um, it happened quick. Like I, I, I never dreamed growing up I would make the kind of money that I was making, you know, as a district manager. And, but that was income, right? And then all of a sudden you get a couple of reorgers, reorgs or restructures going on. And suddenly I've been restructured five times and, you know, eventually you're not going to land. <laughs> you get through them a couple of times, but at some point you're not going to have a chair. And then all of a sudden that income's gone and you haven't done anything to create wealth. Um, so that, that's number one is just understand the difference, which then leads to my, my second is try to figure out how to make money while you sleep. So, you know, when you're in that demanding job and you've got a good income, get those side hustles going with somebody. Uh, and I'm a big fan of partnering. You get as many smart people in a room as you possibly can um, with diverse backgrounds, get some side hustles rolling, make some money while you sleep. Um, and then all of a sudden that side hustle might become, you know, your business or your dream. But what you're doing is you're protecting yourself. So when you do go through those reorgs, you're not starting at scratch, right? You've created wealth and, and you can kind of weather the storm through those. So anyway, uh, the lessons I'll be sharing with my kids that, that I learned late is the difference between income and wealth and how to make money while you sleep. Hey, great lessons. Um, uh, so, uh, one of the things that we always try to look for, and, and one of the whole points of the real finance podcast is to try to find folks that can help not only influence our careers, but help, um, us see the world in a little bit different way. Um, and, uh, one of the questions we ask everyone is what real estate books or business books did you read in your life that you think influenced your career? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll take the, a stab at that. <clears throat> Rudy's re referenced syndications multiple times on the, on this chat and you have as well. <laughs> and in 2019, yeah. we'd never heard of a syndication, right? And, and it was an idea that Rudy brought to me is, you know, how do we do this and use other people's money and use our network? And, and he found this gentleman. So I give all the credit in the world to Rudy. Uh, the gentleman's name is Peter Harris and, and just YouTube him. Just go on and YouTube Peter Harris and just type in syndication. And uh, he's with a company called commercial property advisors. And he actually wrote a book called commercial real estate for dummies. Okay. Um, and, and we watched that uh, YouTube video probably 20, 30, 40 <clears throat> times just picking it apart. And, and he's the one who's done the most for us, in my opinion, teaching us uh, how to do the syndication in a way that, that makes sense for us. So Peter Harris, commercial property advisor. 
And for me, I'll go a little bit more old school. So mine is actually a book probably most podcasters may have heard of. It's called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Yeah, excellent. And I, I, was, I was fortunate enough to find a uh, version of that book that was called The Action Pack. So I encourage people to go see if they can find the Think and Grow Rich Action Pack. The reason that was impactful for me was in the moment, it would ask me questions. And I chose to you know write my answers in the book as I was going through it. And man, I got into it. My wife would get really frustrated with me because I'm sitting there reading book in the middle of the night and you know, <laughs> writing answers down and jiggling the bed. And she's like, "Can you shut your light off? Go to bed for crying out loud. But, um, and I still have my notes in it. And I'll refer back to that Think and Grow Rich Action Pack book uh, 20 years later. Like I, I bought that thing in the early 2000s before I started my kind of real estate side hustle. But it crystallized for me the power of the human mind to you know, think about what it is you want and then begin to take action steps toward those goals. Right. Just thinking about it and having a dream is one thing, but actually creating a plan and, and putting precise steps, specific steps down is really, really powerful. So you can find all kinds of versions of goal planning, goal setting. Uh, but that one for me is a big one. So the last question we ask, and, and this is like you guys have already influenced, I think, several people who are probably listening to the podcast right now to maybe go out and take action or think about syndication, but is there a person that has influenced you in the world and should we have them on the podcast? My answer would be um, also a partner of ours. who would be Jason Graves. So Jason Graves, uh, a friend of ours, he lives in San Diego, California. He, he's a big thinker. He's, um, he's got a, a lot of, um, hooks into the uh, short-term rental space, uh, but he also has, has been very influential in helping us, you know, think bigger in terms of our syndication. But Jason Graves, uh, real estate cash flow is his, uh, his business, but I would connect with him. Yeah, Jason would be great. Um, he, he's one of the most skilled individuals I've ever seen at uh, raising capital. Um, and I think he does a lot of Airbnb uh, investing as well. So he'd be really good. I'm going to tell you a swing for the fences. So I just said Peter Harris was the most influential person for me as I was watching his videos. Man, go, go get Peter on here. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you, know, you know what? You know what? We, we, can, we can try reaching out to both of them. Um, and uh, on that note, um, thank you guys for hopping on the podcast today. Uh, it, true blessing to have um, a, such a wide range of, of knowledge in terms of syndication, uh, manufactured homes. And uh, if folks want to reach out to you, where's the best place to reach out to you? I think the simplest is just our website, which is sawgrasscapitalpartners.com. And, and people will mis, uh, misspell capital often, but think of it capital as in money, C-A-P-I-T-A-L, capital partners. So that's probably the simplest. They can find me on LinkedIn as well, Mike. Yeah, I was going to say Sawgrass Capital Partners. I have it up in my on my name there, um, or LinkedIn, uh, Mike Sampson, and, and we got a lot of help along the way. Um, we would love to help anybody who's getting started in this. So feel free to reach out. Awesome guys, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today, and uh, uh, hopefully we can have you on sometime in the future. Sounds yeah, great, Gordon. Gordon. Thank you. Have a great week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, a five-star rating, a review. 
Your comments, interactions, and subscriptions matter for the podcast algorithm and help us continue to get guests our viewers want to listen to and learn from. You can follow us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lamphere with The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening.